0: and welcome. Legally Brief presents the Child Athlete Abuse Podcast. I'm your host, Judy Saunders. I'm a lawyer, mother, and after today's conversation with Rachel Grant, beyond a survivor. I work with competitive athletes, other survivors, and their families who are confronting abuse. This podcast is for parents, it's for families, it's survivors who are fed up, They're tired of dealing with fear, and they're searching for answers. Like I said, on today's episode, I'm having a conversation with Rachel Grant. It's been said that if you do not transform your pain, you will transmit it to others. Well, Rachel has transformed her pain and lives in a place of beyond surviving. In that place, Rachel is showing others how to accept injury And then not just live as a survivor, but move into that final phase beyond surviving. Rachel is the owner and founder of the Rachel Grant Coaching and is a sexual abuse recovery coach. She works for survivors of childhood sexual abuse who are sick, they're tired, they feel broken, unfixable, and burdened by the past. Rachel helps survivors let go of the pain of abuse, and finally feel normal. She is also the author of Beyond Surviving, The Final Stage of Recovery from Sexual Abuse. While I hope you enjoy this episode and other episodes of this podcast, the contents are never a substitute for contacting and speaking directly with a licensed attorney who knows and understands your unique circumstances. Nothing I say, tell you in this show can serve or create an attorney-client relationship. This show is strictly for informational purposes. If you're looking for past episodes, go to my website, jsaunderslawfirm.com. And when you visit the website, there's lots of additional information that can help you with some answers to questions and will speak directly to parents, survivors, and their families please sign up for the firm's monthly newsletter. You do that by leaving your email on the website contact page. And if you're ready to speak directly with an attorney or learn more about your options for confronting abuse, call my office directly for a confidential conversation. You can do that at 212-709-8141. Finally, If you like what you hear on this show, if it resonates with you, hit the subscribe button. That way you will automatically get new episodes delivered directly to you. Rate and review the show. Leave a comment. Leave a question. The main objective of this podcast is for me to make it easy for you to understand the law and to move forward, to live beyond that fear and uncertainty. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. I am talking to Rachel Grant, and you are out in the West Coast. So I guess it's good morning to you and good afternoon here on the East Coast. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: So nice to be here. Thank you.
0: Good. It is going to be a pleasure. Brief intro. Rachel Grant is the owner and founder of the Rachel Grant Coaching and is a sexual abuse recovery coach. Rachel works with survivors of childhood sexual abuse who are beyond sick of being tired, feeling broken, and are burdened by the past. They're tired of all those things. And on this podcast, we absolutely get that because I speak to an audience who is fed up, they're tired of fear, and they want to move forward. So that's why this is going to be an amazing conversation just by way of education or credentials. Rachel, it's my understanding that you hold a master's of counseling and psychology and you in your practice and what you do, you provide compassionate and a challenging approach to your clients. And you are based, as I said before, good morning, you're based in San Francisco. Is that correct? That's right. All right. Well, I want to dive right in and ask you why this work, why the specializing in the area of sexual abuse and dealing with Survivors in that area. What brought you to that?
1: Yeah, thank you. Well, like so many who find their way into doing healing work, I have my own experience of trauma. I grew up in the country, so Oklahoma. So I'm a country kid at heart. And lived in just a pretty modest little town with my mom, my dad, brother, sister, all that. And when I was five years old, my grandfather came to live with our family. He was getting up there in age and needed some extra care. And I was actually really excited about this. Uh, He became immediately a captive audience for me, right? Like playmate, I'm going to just spend all my time there. And it really developed a deep, close relationship with him until the age of 10 when he began sexually abusing me. And like so many who experience trauma, we have a trusted relationship, right? There's somebody, an adult usually in our life who we're looking to for mentorship or for love or whatever it might be. And that is betrayed in the context of abuse and trauma. And as the abuse continued and escalated, I was overwhelmed by all the things that we are overwhelmed with when abuse enters our life. Fear anxiety, being overwhelmed with senses of this must be my fault. What did I do? It's like all of a sudden this home that was warm and, you know, safe and a place that I looked forward to going and being uh, changed its tone. It became dark and gray and, and a harder place to live. And so one day my mom just happened to catch him in the act. And she snatched me away from him like only a country mama can, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and, uh, you know, and she and my dad immediately got him out of our home, which I'm always very thankful for. And I always make a point of naming and honoring because not all parents respond this way when they discover their child's being abused. And, you know, Judy, while he was physically gone, boy, the emotional impact, the mental impact of what he had done was still there. And, you know, my parents tried to get me into counseling, but mm, (laughs) I was like, are you crazy? You want me to do what? Sit down and talk to who? About
0: what? Like Something so personal, right?
1: uh Uh-uh. And I would literally run away to the woods just to avoid and escape the sessions. Uh, I just, like so, so many people, just wanted to put my head in the sand and pretend that everything was okay. Like, I'm fine. I'm good. So life continues to unfold, right? I move into my teen years holding all of this trauma, trying to pretend that I'm fine. And in many ways, excelling, like I'm doing great in school. I have friends, I play volleyball. I'm doing the thing, right? Dating and, but I also have lots and lots of struggles. You know, sexuality is, you know, out of whack and um, out of hand. Certainly my sense of self and self-worth and ability to trust people. So by the time I get to college, I'm starting a relationship and it's just really clear to me, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm a hot mess. I'm still really struggling with all of this trauma. So I start that process of discovery. But really, my goal in life was to be a high school English teacher. That's what I wanted to do. Right. I wanted to be, I watched Dead Poet Society with Robin Williams. Right, <laughs> Right. I was like, I'm going to be him, right? And so, you know, I'm starting to do some therapy just with the lens of like, let me get myself together. And some of it's helping, some of it's not helping. And by the time I get mostly through my degree program, I start hanging out with some high schoolers and I'm like, oh, I do not like you all. <laughs> <laughs> Very oh insightful. No, what is going to happen now? Like, My whole entire life purpose was wrapped up in this idea of teaching in high school and all that. So I just shifted and I started working with elementary ed. Fast forward, I, you know, I become a teacher later in life when we move to San Francisco. um, I get married and I'm living in San Francisco and I start nannying. Um, I just realized I really wanted to focus on child development, kind of that one-on-one experience. Okay. And, but I'm in an abusive relationship and it's not healthy and it's problematic. And so I'm still trying to figure out my childhood trauma. I'm experiencing severe verbal and emotional abuse, along with physical abuse, I'm taking care of these beautiful little human beings and yeah. having an amazing you know, experience there. And when we divorced, it was just a real point of clarity, a moment of like, oh my gosh, what am I doing here? Like if I just keep going in the same direction that I've been going, not good. Something has got to change. So the kids were getting older, unfortunately, you know, we keep them, (laughs) if only I could keep them as babies. Right. That was happening. I was at this turning point in my life with my marriage dissolving, and I was still suffering from all of these things that happened so many years ago. And I just had a moment, Judy, where I said, I'm going to get my shit together. I just have to do it. And so that was the moment where I just made up my mind to figure out how do I actually heal from this trauma? So I started reading everything I could. I went back to school and I did my master's in counseling psychology. I began to study neuroscience. And again, it was really very much through the lens of like, I need this for me. But as I started to see things really start to change and transform in my life, I got curious, just like, hey, could this work for other people? Could the approach that I'm taking that was different from therapy, that was different from kind of just uh, psychologizing or reminiscing upon but beginning to think about what do we actually do to heal? So I started to address it through the lens of education, right? Drawing on that background, also thinking about this as an injury. Okay. How do we resolve injuries? How do we heal injuries? So, some brave women were my guinea pigs back in 2007. And I took them through what was the very, very first version of Beyond Surviving. And of course, that program has continued to evolve. And now, 14 years later, here I am. (laughs) This is the work that I do full time with men and women all over the country, all over the world. Again, really through that lens of most of the people coming to me have experienced some healing they've done some therapy they've made some progress but there's an underlying feeling of like I'm not there yet there's yes. something still not quite clicking in and I'm ready to really be done and move on with my life and so that shift of focus into identifying problems but very quickly what are we going to do about that and teaching very specific skills and tools towards that end is really the focus of the work that I do
0: I love that you said so much and I'm going to unpack A lot of that, but what I want to do, even, you know what you mentioned before, there's a couple of things you mentioned before, and I didn't say it in, as we just started our free flowing conversation, I will make it in more of a formal introduction, but you mentioned Beyond Surviving. Beyond Surviving is the book that you wrote. Can you give us the full title of that? Because I found that title to be so profound.
1: Ooh, Beyond Surviving, the final stage in recovery from sexual abuse.
0: All right. And we're going to touch on that. But Rachel, what really excited me about bringing you onto the podcast and featuring your work to the listeners here at Child Athlete Abuse was this statement. And I want to read it to you because then I want you to explain it. It says, in your words, you said, I strongly believe that the wounds of abuse can be healed and looked back upon in the same way as an injury. It's put it in context. You go on to say that we can see a scar has been created, but we don't feel the pain a need to compensate or constantly rebandage the wound. However, this requires another shift from survivor to beyond surviving. For that reason, you use, you say I use the term beyond surviving to describe myself and is my hope that you will come to describe yourself that way as well. Talk to us a little bit about what that statement means beyond surviving. That just really hit me because it sounds to me, and I'll tell you a little bit what I inferred from it, it sounds actionable. It sounds something that can be identified. I know that through my practice, my law practice, and just through my personal life, the feeling of being stuck, that wound of whether it's sexual abuse or all of the above, sexual, emotional, or physical it can st- feel so fresh long after the incident. It can feel so fresh when you revisit it in your mind and you feel that emotion, you see it. So what did you mean by that? What What is this actionable work beyond surviving?
1: Thank you. So I'll tell you the story of how this phrase even came into my life, which was, Back in like 2008 or so, I was doing a workshop in which we were tasked with creating a community event. And I knew that I wanted to bring people together like a panel to talk about trauma and healing. And I was really struggling with what to call this event. And I was talking with one of my, you know, co-participants about it. And, you know, he was asking questions about why this and very similarly, just telling my story and how I got here and why it matters to me. And he looks at me, Judy, and he says, Rachel, I don't know what to call this thing, but I just have to tell you, you are such a survivor. You're so strong. You've made it through so much. For whatever reason, that particular day, I was not having it. And I lost my shit on this man. I was like, I am so sick of being called a survivor. I don't want to be a survivor. Are you kidding me? Who wants to survive their life? I just went on a rant. (laughs) I eventually hit this moment where I was like, I do not want to survive my life. I want to live it. There must be something beyond surviving. And he starts laughing at me. Which, <laughs> you know, when you're upset and someone yeah. starts laughing at you, you're like, now you're more upset. Yes. He, you know, he tenderly said, I don't, I don't know anything else, but I know you have a title now. And it did, it just resonated. And what it's really come to mean, I didn't even understand it even fully myself. You know, sometimes you're gifted from the universe. Yes. The sense of something. And then as you work with it and do it over time, you begin to understand what it's all about. What it's really come to represent for me, one, it's a verb. It's not a label. It's not a noun. It's not an identity. Like, I am not my abuse. I am not my trauma. I am not my past. I am all sorts of things. I am a composite of all kinds of experiences in my life. So to identify just as a survivor is to really leave out all the good stuff, to leave out the dynamics of who I am. And to label in many ways trap me in identification with an experience. Whereas beyond surviving is a way of living. It's a lifestyle. It's an absolute awareness that I can feel complete about the things that have happened to me, that I can integrate those experiences. They can become a part of the narrative of my life. But they are not like they're not charged. There's not all of this like activation, that compensation piece, right? I don't have to keep compensating for the things that happened to me. I don't have to keep going back and rebandaging the wound and rebandaging the wound again. And that I can instead live very empowered and in the present. This really came into clarity. The section that you're reading there, I began thinking about why do we treat psychological trauma, emotional trauma, sexual physical trauma as this like something that's almost like an a debt that we then carry, and we can never pay it off. Wow, It's like a life sentence. I hated that. I didn't like that. I had a counselor who very pointedly said to me once in response to my fear that I was never going to be able to live my life, that I was never going to feel normal, essentially responded, yes, that's right. And I just thought that has got to be the wrong answer. And so I began to think about, especially as I started to study neuroscience, Ooh, gosh. Okay. So as you get into understanding, wait, when somebody is abused, this changes the amygdala in this way, makes the amygdala do that. Oh, when somebody is experiencing trauma, this is what the nervous system does in response. This is what the prefrontal cortex does. This is what the hippocampus does. So I began thinking about it as an injury. And if it's an injury, it can be healed. Because just as you were referencing, I started to think about it through this lens of when I fall down and I scrape my knee, Right. I get an injury. I don't look at that and go, oh my gosh, I guess I'm gonna have to live with that for the rest of my life.
0: Right, right.
1: (laughs) Like walking around, like limping around with this like, you know, no, like it heals. I use the things that help it heal, right? And then I can see that scar. I can say, yeah, I remember that day when I fell down, but I don't have this like flashback. I don't have a, you know, re-experiencing all of all the moments and all the pain and all the feeling. And while- It pushes some philosophies that are out there about trauma. It really is my perspective and my point of view. It's not a life sentence. We can heal these injuries through interventions, through tools, through strategies, just like we heal any other injury.
0: So you have hit a nerve with me because I've struggled with that term word survivor for so long. It is actually in the intro of uh, my podcast when I say I'm an attorney, mother and survivor. And I'll tell you, even hearing the word come off of my mouth, mm-hmm. i don't no matter how many times I say it, I can feel just a little just a little tensing up when I hear it. I had on the podcast a gentleman really great entrepreneur, Rob Stolger. He wrote a book and he started really a movement to outfit every female lacrosse player with headgear currently in the game of lacrosse, mm-hmm. females do not ha- they play with no headgear and this game can be very, very damaging yeah. The uh, versus on the men's side or boys, men, they have full gear. They have, you know, come they, on. yes. So he started this movement. He I has four that. daughters. So we started that and we were speak during the course of that conversation. I brought that up to say that I use that word term survivor. And during that podcast, I said, you know what, Rob, I just don't like that word. We got to find another word. Lo and behold, it's come full circle. And now I think I'm going to have to go back, change my podcast intro, and now only use Beyond Survivor. So I Yay. sit on that to say, thank you for that. Oh. So let me take the conversation back because you said something that is important to me before we talk about the title of your book and this final phase. When you were talking earlier, you mentioned that you honored your parents, your mother and your father for their response. And I want you to speak about exactly what do you mean by that? I've heard this phrase, and maybe we can put it in the context of this phrase, that sometimes it may not be necessarily the trauma or the abuse that is particularly traumatizing, but it can be equally traumatizing the response that the individual receives from the people they love. So disbelief or disassociation with it or minimizing it And in particular, Rachel, I see this a lot where a child athlete and their parent would complain of, be it sexual abuse, physical abuse, and they would complain to a higher authority within the sport, say a national governing body or the United States Center for Safe Sport. And the response may be no response, a minimized response, a failure to ban or sanction the coach. So can you just, weaving that all into what? could it do to an individual when those that they love or individuals in authority do not respond or validate that abuse? What did you see in your situation and what can you see when it doesn't happen when there isn't that recognition?
1: Yeah, thank you. So when we think about abuse, regardless of who the abuser is, the underlying construct of trauma is that there is a removal of choice that the child is put in a position in which autonomy and choice is taken away. They're at the mercy of this person's choice, this person's behavior, this other person's actions. What children are always is dependent upon the adults around them for protection. They need the adults. They need the adults to provide shelter, to provide food, to provide nurturing, to provide guidance. And when a adult uses their position of authority to harm a child, the very thing that the child is feeling is unprotected. And then when the abuse is found out or the child dares to speak out, which is such a hard thing to do, and then they get back no response or they get back, it wasn't that bad. I'm sure you're making, you know, a mountain out of a molehill or look, we can't really look, there are other things that are more important right now. Just deal with it. Like whatever the response is, if it's dismissive in any way or minimizing in any way, then they've now been deemed again. Here's another adult who is not protecting me. So for me, psychologically, I had this experience with my grandfather, not protecting me we can look at the word abandonment. This is all under the umbrella of abandonment. One form of abandonment is the loss of protection, experiencing the loss of protection. So my grandfather abandoned his role and his duty to protect me, to take care of me. My mother and my father did not. And so for me, psychologically, emotionally, there was this foundation that always remained solid for me even though there was a lot that was crazy and a hot mess yeah. right it still it kind of like if you think about it like i could only in some ways drop so low All right because i would always come back to this place of but mom and dad has me
0: they've right. got me
1: right and in many ways that also helped me be a little bit go through my pain go through being a hot mess because i knew i had this place that i could fall back on right when a child does not receive that, then that foundation, there's already a crack in the foundation, and then it gets wider and wider with every loss, every moment of loss of protection. Every adult who says, I'm not going to step in and stop this for you. I'm not going to help you. Whether it's the, the parent or it's the next level, like you were describing, the people who are like overseeing the, the industry or the, mm-hmm. the team or whatever it might be, then that just that crack just opens wider and wider and wider, which means the person can decompensate more and more and more and more. And their fears and their concerns about safety, being okay in the world, feeling protected, feeling cared for, all of that just becomes more and more out of proportion or dysfunctional. To wrap that up, the impact of that, of course, is then, ooh, relationships.
0: Mm-mm. that's where it manifests itself. Yeah.
1: Relationships is going to be the key area where that then keeps manifesting again and again and again. A couple of things people do is they start to always try to get the new result. And so they'll start to look to their partners to provide that kind of protection. But if you're an adult relationship right, and you're looking, you're looking to the partner to provide you protection, then you're actually sitting in your child self. Wow. And if you're in relationship from your child self, you cannot have a healthy relationship.
0: That is not going to work. But what work. you've given us, I think, for parents that are listening is some hope, especially and I'm speaking specifically to parents that are dealing with maybe an authority figure that is there. So the parent is working in tandem with the child. The parent is believing the child, helping the child. But then the parent and child now go lockstep together to if it's a national governing body or even law enforcement or prosecutor or whomever an authority figure that's not believing. I think though you've offered some hope to parents to say, look, keep supporting your child regardless of what any outside authority figure may do.
1: Yeah.
0: That I love the way you gave us that visual. That's the foundation. That's kind of a baseline that your child can come back to. So that to me is a great thing for parents to know because it takes me to the thought of so many parents that I encounter, Rachel, have this just guilt and shame that the abuse, and I don't know if this was true or if you're, if you feel comfortable speaking about this, have the guilt. It's almost as if the pain is so fresh and being a parent, I understand that the pain is just horrible that you didn't protect your child. Oh my God, it happened when I dropped my child off at the gym. I can't believe it happened for five years and I didn't know, or I didn't see. And worse yet, because when I speak in the context of, you know, sports, a lot of times it's acceptable levels of emotional abuse, toughen up, get tough. You know, it's very acceptable. So you have once an individual gets to me or is talking or things that I read, the parent is riddled with guilt so much so that it could be and i find sometimes paralyzing to even the child moving forward. What have you seen in the area and what can you tell parents about how they can be supportive, what if anything they need to do to mm-hmm. move through this situation so that the child can also heal.
1: So, going back to when we have a child and the parent is in and becoming an advocate for their child okay. and then going to heads of the organizations and getting, you know, pushed away. I think One thing that I would offer is to be very articulate about that with the child. I believe you, no matter what anybody else says, like really reiterating that point over. You cannot say it enough. Okay. You cannot say it enough. It was not your fault. I believe you. And literally name these people are wrong. (laughs) Like this is wrong what they're doing. Don't let there be any gray area. Make it very black and white and very clear for your child. I am bringing this to these people. They are doing this. That is not okay. That is wrong. This is what they should be doing right now. And I hate that they're not, but even though they're not, I love you. I'm here for you. I support you. I believe you, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Now deal with your own pain. Absolutely. The parent taking on the shame and the blame and the guilt for what somebody else has done is no different than the child doing that. It's the same process. So unpacking that is the same process. It's all about getting into their bucket, what belongs to them and out of the bucket, what what doesn't belong to you. So shame um, really starts to happen when we're taking responsibility for something that doesn't belong to us. And what is interesting is that A child is going to do this immediately because psychologically that's the safest thing to do is to make it about them because that gives them a sense of power. That gives them a sense of if it's about me, if I'm the one that's causing this, if I'm the one that made all this happen, I can do something to change it. Yes. What we have to do to support the child is to help them come into the deep understanding that this person made a choice and that's the only thing that caused any of this to happen. So what's actually true is if a parent communicates to a child I'm so sorry. I let this happen. It's my fault that I didn't see it or da, da, da anything like that. You're actually
0: muddying the waters. Let's say that again, please. If the parent does, the parent
1: says things that seem compassionate, right? They seem yeah. like this is me expressing my love for you. Things yes. like, I'm so sorry. I wish this hadn't had, I let this happen to you. I yes. should have seen this. I should have done something. I should have known. Then it muddies the water because the child goes, Well, yeah, but I should have known, or I should have done it, or Oh, you're telling me there's something we all could have done to okay. make this change. So the parent really needs to reiterate the same message to themselves, to the child I'm not responsible. You're not responsible. The only person here responsible is the person who chose to be abusive.
0: I think you just freed a, a whole generation of individuals with that. I, I really, I really, really do you are not responsible because and i think that that's so helpful to hear over and over again yes we're in a culture that still to this day i mean even taking it out of the context of what we're talking about where there is you know the now the popularized term gaslighting which comes from a very old movie where it mm-hmm. is that the abuser, the individual using situations to make you feel guilty, to make a parent feel guilty as if they did it. We know that there's many cultures around the world where victims of sexual assault themselves are shunned, they're Mm -hmm. prosecuted, they're even killed. So Mm -hmm. there's always that underlining belief, I think, that humans that beyond survivors use, what could I have done? Was there something? I mean, it's the popular notion of, you know, well, you were raped because your skirt was too short, which still unfortunately happens today. Let me, I I want to put us onto the track of talking about the title of your book, Beyond Surviving, the final stage of recovery, which got me excited. And I was like, okay, wait a minute. One, because I'm a list lady. I make lists and I, if you give me, there's nothing that energizes me. Then someone sending me an email and there's a list. I put list in bullet points. So when I saw that the stages of recovery, I was like, wait a minute, does she mean a list? And there is there's an end to this? Mm-hmm. And that final stage is so hopeful. Mm-hmm. Why the name? Why name the book like that? Is there a final stage? Talk talk to us a little bit about that. Thank you, Judy.
1: So when I was thinking about my journey, and certainly as I started listening to the stories of others. And hearing about their process, I started to hear a pattern because I love lists too. So I'm Mm -hmm. like, what's the pattern? What's the list? What's the structure? Right. And I started to see that my process looked very similar to others. We had some things in common. We all started in this place of denial. Okay. Talked a little bit about that in my story already, right? Right. In the sand, don't wanna look at this, don't wanna touch it, don't wanna deal with it. I'm fine. Everybody who experiences abuse and trauma goes through that stage at some point, it stops working. At some point, it catches up with you. And we are faced with the moment of acknowledgement. And when we do that, we acknowledge this experience happened. This experience is still impacting my life. That is the bridge that brings us in to the survivor stage, which is an important part of the process. That's our second stage. This is when we start to name what happened. This is where therapy is great because you just get mm-hmm. to sit on the couch and just vomit it all out. <laughs> like, right? Just do it, right? Talk about the things. You start to get some insight and understanding about, oh, the reason why I struggle with this is because of that. And these, power, yeah. these things are interconnected. But in my process, I, again, that place of survivor wasn't the end for me. That shift and transition was actually really critical and important in, you know, in the field of trauma healing. When women really started to stand up and hold this space as survivor, it was a sloughing off of the term victim, which was critical. Right. But we just got stuck there a little bit. Um, and, And so I thought, okay, so what's the next piece? The next piece is what I call beyond surviving. This is, but the bridge to that is when you hit a point in your recovery and your healing where you're like, okay, enough is enough. Like I've talked this to death. This is often when people are so book smart about trauma. They know all the lingo, they mm. read all the books, but yet something is not actually activating change fully in their life. So we need to get street smart about trauma. We need to understand what are the actual strategies and interventions. And so when I say final stage of recovery, Recovery is that time in your life where you are putting so much of your time, energy, resources into trying to unpack, resolve the trauma, integrate it, understand it, contextualize it, resolve the areas that are problematic for you, such as getting clear that it's not your fault, understanding how to manage your nervous system, because a huge part of healing is going from the dysregulated nervous system to a healthy nervous system. So. Recovery is that's the period in time in your life where you're doing all of that hard work, but we aren't meant to be in recovery forever, <laughs> right. Right. right? And so let's complete that. So the final stage of recovery is like completing into that so that you can step into beyond surviving, living a lifestyle in which you have way less activation. If you are activated, you know how to respond. It isn't the final stage of life. It right. isn't the final stage of growing or learning things about yourself but it is the final stage where you're not constantly in conversation or dialogue with yourself about the trauma.
0: Does make sense? So it makes absolute sense. And you're have a perfect, that's a perfect segue, that constant conversation with yourself about the trauma. This is what I have found. And I, I use the term ruminating that thought, that cycle, that broken record, that it doesn't matter what you're doing say the child athlete is performing a skill or they're in they've left the situation mom and dad have found out they've moved them on but the child is you know on another team and they could be doing something and the thought comes back and it's just going and ruminating so that activation so how then is it in that final stage that an individual will then learn how to say yes something just happened. Maybe another adult said something unintentionally, but it triggered that thought. Is that how then an individual, the child will learn how to, I've been triggered. I realize this, I've been activated. Is that what you mean by that term? Yeah,
1: Yeah, that's it. So in some ways, I almost like would go back and change this just a little bit to think about it as like, there's something like beyond surviving is what comes after like I would almost say like what you learn or what you explore, what you become after the final stage of recovery. Does that make sense? Got it. Like in the process of the program, what we're doing is the work of completing the recovery. And what's on the other side of that is beyond surviving. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so in the process, you're learning how to identify triggers you're understanding the neuro, it, at least this is my way of approaching this. This is how mm-hmm. I do this work. Mm-hmm. Very first and foremost is, you know, retraining the brain. Those triggers, those activations understanding why they're there, how they happen, but very importantly, what are the interventions that you can use? Because when the system is in a dysregulated state, it's really like everything feels like an activation. And so if you kind of think about it like a wiggly line, like it's a lot of ups and downs, ups and downs, ups and downs, ups and downs, right? Whereas healthy nervous system regulation, we're in that kind of optimized baseline kind of calm self. And then something might happen. Somebody might say something and we start to feel that activation. But the key and the goal is to be able to identify it, use an intervention and come out of that in a much more smooth process, much more smoothly, right? So that you're not in these, we're really two goals, decreasing how often we become activated and decreasing how long we stay stuck there.
0: And that's what you do with your counseling. Yeah. Because so many times, like I was saying before, I see both parent and child because a lot of what we speak to is helping parents, listeners support their children. And not only could do the children get activated, but parents can also get activated. And it usually happens almost in tandem or more more so of a domino effect. So say now the child is in, quote unquote, a safer place. Like I was saying before, using that same example, a coach unintentionally maybe speaks too loud or maybe too rough with the individual, not realizing that this child has had a prior abuse mm-hmm. that happened. And then the child now is crying, the parent is upset. And then you kind of are back into this whole world mm-hmm. where as if the abuse is taking place afresh. So uh-huh. then how then do parents, should parents use that same type 100%. of? 100%. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, All right.
1: Because the other thing that's happening is there are what's called mirror neurons. So even right now, as you and I are talking, even though we're not even in the same room, mm-hmm. like my brain and my neurons are picking up your vibe, your energy, your tone of voice, yeah. these things, and it's processing. And in some ways we're mirroring back, which is why we have kind of a same, a little bit of a same tempo energy, Got it. right? Yes. If I started to really slow down, hmm I started to talk just a little differently. Eventually, you would too. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's a great video going around right now, actually, of this little boy whose brother, I don't know, the little boy's probably five and his little brother's maybe three. And the three year old's about to go into a tantrum, like one of those I'm going to scream my head off for <laughs> right. days tantrums. And he just stands in front of him and he, he, he uses his hands, like you can see him kind of doing this downward motion. Let's breathe. Wow. Take a deep breath with me. Like he stays so chill and calm, the three-year-old just comes right out of that activation and then they go on and play.
0: Wow. I have to then ask you this, what then can mom, dad, loved one do? They see their child is either on the precipice or is going down into because they've been activated. Anything that maybe one or two things yeah. mom or dad yeah.
1: can do. Distraction tools are are awesome. So what's happening when the system is activated is the amygdala begins to flood the brain and the body. And that's because the amygdala is anticipating danger. And so it wants to get the body ready to defend itself. So it's either going to like run away. This is the freeze, flight, fight stuff. And when the amygdala is flooding the system, It causes other parts of the brain to decompensate because the name of the game at that moment is survival. Even if it's a person yelling and raising a voice and not a a snake, the brain experiences it the same way, particularly if you've had past trauma around loud noises or being yelled at. So when the amygdala starts to flood the system, the prefrontal cortex is diminished. This is the part of the brain that controls rational thought, problem-solving thought, executive functioning, focus. The other part of the brain that is diminished is the Broca's area, which controls speech, being able to articulate. So I'm going to start out with the don't do's. Right. Don't ask your child to tell you what's going on. They won't be able to
0: articulate themselves. Well, which is the first right. thing I would do.
1: <laughs> what's going on? Talk to me. Tell me what's right. happening. And they're right. just like, ah, oh, it's like, you know, even more, it, like creates more anxiety. In right. because they're going to try to access words. They might not be able to because the Broca's area is diminished. And then they start to feel afraid. Why can't I talk? Why can't I? And that creates more activation. You know, trying to get them to think rationally, trying to reason with a child. Like we know this when they're very little, when they're two, we don't try to reason with a two-year-old. We give them a toy. We give them candy. We give them, we sing a, sing a song, right? What I think happens, I mean, and this is partly built out of my many, many years in childhood education and many years as a nanny, 15-year-olds are no different from two-year-olds. We start to think that because they're fifteen. And they should know better, and they have more skills, and they're more rational. When they're calm, that's true. We can talk to them on a more dynamic level. But when that 15 year old is activated, just see them as your little baby. Just see them again as your two year old or your three year old. They need hugs, they need rocking, they need warm sounds, a glass of milk. <laughs> you yes. know, we have to slow them down. We can use distraction. We can use things like, tell me five things that you see in the room that are red. Talk with me about what you, you know, the last vacation that we went on, you know, things that they can kind of articulate about because it's not their inner, it's not their emotional part, yes. right? So it's yes. neutral. They can usually talk about things like that. We have to think about getting them back into that place of regulation. And then we can sit down and talk about like, hey, what just happened? <laughs> like, yeah. What's going on for you? And, you know, let's talk about this.
0: And but similarly- if- what would you say then mom or dad now, they're activated. They see yeah. that their child is suffering mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that is so much of our listeners that are trying to manage. They're trying to get to a place where they can support their child, but they themselves are suffering. Maybe they're still suffering because they're still feeling that that shame and their yeah. guilt that they haven't worked through. Do you recommend or... What are your thoughts around, I guess I should ask, you see your child being activated. You see the suffering going on. Should you step out of the room Mm -hmm. and bring yourself down?
1: Yeah, I would say there are a couple of different options. First, just a resource before I forget, rachelgrantcoaching.com, rachelgrantcoaching.com slash resources, and then go to the parents section. Lots of great options. I'm going to put
0: that in the show notes. Okay.
1: So... Yes, I think there are a couple of different ways you can access this. Depending on your parenting style, depending on your own attachment style, your own nervous system health, you're going to have easier or harder times self-regulating in the face of particularly your child being in pain. I bring it right back. Like when my, you know, when my kids that I took care of, when the three-year-old was going off, like it wasn't fun for me, (laughs) I wasn't having a good time, but I recognized and understood I'm the adult. It's my job. For me, that is a way of anchoring myself to keep myself out. Like I'll process my feelings about this later because I do need to. And by the way, parents, you do need to, you need to have that place where you can vent and you can speak it and you can name it and say it, but not with the child and not in that moment. So for me, just anchoring into like, I'm the adult here. This is my job that worked for me a lot to just stay out of activation. But At times, (laughs) we would have peace and quiet time. (laughs)
0: Like, Okay,
1: everybody, we're just going to be quiet for five minutes.
0: That's another tool.
1: Another tool. Just like, let's all go quiet. Let's sit together. Like, we don't have to leave each other's space. But let's just all, like, mom's the word for five minutes. You can absolutely leave the room. can absolutely take a break. Communicate to the child, I love you. I'm here for you. I need to go catch my breath so I can come back and really take good care of you. Just let them know what's up. You know, don't just walk out on them because they'll go right into that's my fault. That's my blame. That's my shame, blah, blah, blah. Among many, many, many others. You can use the distraction tool with yourself. Like let's play a game or let's do it together. You name something, I'll name something. You name something, I'll name something. So you can co-regulate because again, that those mirror neurons work so great. So even if you both use the tool together, then it can both You know, it'll be supporting you both. Those are some things that immediately come to mind.
0: That's so important. And I'm going to send parents to check out that link that you just gave it. I'll put it in the show notes. Let's talk a little bit about, and I know that your expertise lies with sexual abuse, but we don't really get far from sexual abuse if we don't, you know, when we talk about emotional and physical abuse. Mm -hmm. I know culturally, and what catches the headlines a lot of times are sexual abuse. In the context that I've seen in sport, you have the notorious cases of Larry Nassar with United States Gymnastics. Some of our greatest female Olympians were sexually abused. We're talking, Mm -hmm. you know, in the hundreds, you have, Mm -hmm. you know, different individuals. You have volleyball coach in suburban Chicago, Rick Butler, who has been accused of sexual abuse. And that usually catches. Still, sometimes we don't see action being taken, but it often brings me to think about What when you, as a child, a young adult, you don't have that piece, that allegation of sexual abuse, but what you have suffered is the emotional, the Mm -hmm. ongoing pattern, you're stupid, You're, you're worthless, being humiliated in front of other teammates being humiliated in front of even your parents sometimes how do you move and do you speak to individuals where it's not necessarily sexual abuse but what they're really suffering from is emotional and physical can you define what that is and if mm. if that if we can heal that scar
1: yeah i think what first comes to mind is that we and you'll definitely be able to correct me if i'm wrong <laughs> my sense of it we don't actually have any laws on the books for emotional or verbal abuse.
0: The standard is so high. It's, it's very so high. high. It's yeah. so
1: high, right? And so parents have all, and people have a lot, not parents, but anybody who's you know mm-hmm. causing trauma has a lot of leeway actually before it could even be called, labeled, named yes. trauma. So they just on a social level, we have a problem. So because we won't try to solve for something until we see it as clearly defined and necessary and that it has an impact. So we're working on that. What's really so and really true is that emotional and verbal trauma have in many ways as much impact, if not more, than the physical sexual trauma. This is because the, the internal narrative that one then sits with has such a profound effect on how yes. a person feels every single day how you walk out into the world. It's an interesting dynamic. I mean, they're all usually, I mean, it's this terrible soup of trauma. You don't usually get just sexual trauma. It's always, there's like this emotional component. Yes. There's often a verbal component in there. Same with physical abuse. Physical abuse is often very primarily aligned with verbal trauma. And so it's very hard to actually segment and separate them out. hmm I work with plenty of clients who do not identify as having sexual trauma. They have physical, emotional, verbal trauma, and we just focus on that. And the process is the same with a few little tweaks here or there, but mostly it's exactly the same. So the good news is, is that the bottom line answer is yes, they're all injuries. They all cause, it's some like sexual trauma and physical trauma causes a little bit more direct impact of injury to the nervous system and to the neuroscience and to the brain. But emotional and verbal trauma is impacting your spirit, your soul, self.
0: What you're saying is so resonates with me. This distinction, this line that we make uh, culturally for sexual trauma, horrible, bad. We put it over here. We recognize it. We prosecute it. We shame the abuser. We write about it. It catches the headlines. Emotional, physical trauma, not so much. In fact, most of the laws that are on our, you know, on our books, so to speak, in the state, if you read most of the statutes, what has to qualify for emotional and the terms? It's usually intentional infliction of emotional abuse, mm. negligent infliction. Usually, it has to be a long-standing pattern. I mean, years and years of degradation, humiliation, wow. and usually you you see such words within the laws that say extreme no reasonable person could ever bear. I remember one case of a football player, high school football player in Ohio, where he had been, he had suffered for so long. The coach had been fired, moved to different schools. And yet that child's case still was dismissed. This was probably in the early nineties, so to speak. Mm -hmm. It's, we've gotten a little bit better but he had been called things that I won't even say, but in, in front of his in front of his teammates, mm-hmm. he had attempted suicide. So that whole minimizing, mm-hmm. I have found, of emotional trauma and even some yes. physical abuse is really profound. And then compound that now, Rachel, and take that inside of the gyms on the sports field. And we're a lot less, we're a lot more willing to just, ah, this just, you know, toughen up. What is that phrase? Toughen up snowflake.
1: Oh my gosh. I hate that so much. I was just thinking that, that whole toughen up, be all that. It's an interesting, okay. This is going to be a little tangent, but we show this is us. We're doing a scene where Kevin was in his, you know, I don't know, maybe like adolescence. So let's say 13, 14, and he's getting into the whole football scene at school. And dad has a very strong point of pride about this. That's, of course, his own past trauma around sports with his dad, um, as we learn and find out. But Kevin reports, coach calls me dumb. Coach calls me stupid. And that dad in This Is Us goes, the next time he's nearby, that coach steps right up to him and says, don't ever call my son stupid again that I cried, I cried, I cried, I cried because there was, it was, it was like, it was the same level of like, I will snap your neck as if this man had physically harmed or sexually harmed his child. And there was just this little glimmer for me of like, okay, there's something being said here in this episode about the importance of protecting our children to the same degree and to the same level from that kind of stuff as from sexual physical trauma so critical.
0: I am hoping that we see more court actions. We're Mm -hmm. seeing more families, more children prevail on these, we call them torts, these actions, the emotional, the intentional negligent infliction of emotional distress. And that's a lot of what I'm doing and advocating and pushing these types of cases for. But I'll tell you, it's hard. Mm -hmm. It's hard to get any type of recognition as to harm or injury, any monetary rewards based on just emotional alone. You need some type of uh, sexual injury or physical injury. So we can keep, you know, looking at that. And I love that you provided, and I'm going to read, you have um, American Medical Association's definition Mm -hmm. for emotional abuse. And I took this from you off of your website and you said that it's when a child is regularly threatened, yelled at, humiliated, ignored, blamed or otherwise emotionally mistreated and i find that to be the case i'm so glad that your work directly addresses that one i'm going to talk to what two more points and then we'll wrap up you mentioned in the book you had discussion around the abuser and that to me i wanted to bring that out because especially in the relationship with athlete, with coach, these relationships, they can sometimes, most of the time, mimic a parent-child relationship. When you get to be in the higher level of sports, you have a child spending, you know, eight to eight, traveling. Talk to us a little bit about how we should look at the abuser. Do we spend time thinking about that individual? Is that part of the healing process? Do we kind of move away from even trying to rationalize or understand the abuser? What's your approach to that?
1: Ooh, okay. These are deep questions. Okay, (laughs) so I'm gonna work up from kind of like bottom first approach all the way to Jedi level. Okay. Okay. All
0: right. (laughs) Okay. Ready.
1: Bottom first approach is identifying and seeing the person as responsible and at fault for the choices that they made. No compassion, no empathy. Just you suck. You're terrible. I hate you. Like it's okay, like to have that as the first place particularly hard about this and particularly a piece of the puzzle right there is making sense of the duality of feelings that you hold. My grandfather, certainly when it's a family member, but even in the context of a coach, these are people who you adore. These are people who, they're not all bad. Like that coach did great things. That coach helped you that time to do that thing and reach that goal that you wanted to reach. This is part of the reason why sexual trauma can go on for so very long within these contexts, because there is this confusion, like you're kind to me here, but you're doing this thing here. And so the first level is really starting to kind of understand that duality of feelings that you hold. But what most people start out with is just trying to go straight to compassion. And I like I can only think about the good things. They stay away from maybe the hate that they feel for that person, the anger they feel towards that person. As we get into clarity, this person made a choice. There isn't anything that I did that caused that choice. Then we can feel our anger and I want you to feel it. Get angry, get pissed off. That doesn't mean yelling and screaming and throwing things. It just means like, let's acknowledge how shitty it is that they made that choice. Let's feel that and not run away from that. From the place of then having connected with that, we can start to release that anger. can start to create some more space for ourselves. And then we can start to understand and work on the impact because of that, this part of my life is difficult. Let me resolve that. Let me resolve that. And ultimately through many, 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 many steps, I'm going to fast forward. Mm -hmm. We start to begin to look at the dynamic of how we define people in our lives. So outside of the context of my work, I never talk about my grandfather as an abuser. He is just somebody who doesn't matter. (laughs) Like he's, there's this complete kind of like setting aside. If I keep identifying him as the abuser, I'm the abused. Right, right. And eventually, we can get to a place where as we heal ourselves, we stop seeing ourselves through the lens of abuse, through the lens of trauma. We do and can reach a place where we begin to see the other person through the lens of the context of who they are, their own life, what might have been informed and influenced those choices that they made. Never in an effort to excuse their choices, but in an effort to create context and perspective. And in that space, that can sometimes create a little bit more room for like releasing, letting go.
0: Got it. Got it. I think it's a must then that anyone listening to this that really wants to move into this final stage has to reach out to you, has to, because that in and of itself, that explanation is something that I haven't heard before in all of the conversations that I've had and the work that I've done in this area. What I wanted to do before we wrap up is, is there a mantra, a phrase So many times I come across individuals that I can see, even when they're telling me in a strictly more sterile legal setting, they're talking about the incident. And I just want to say something to them so that they could even describe the incident without so much shame, just weighing on it. I could see it on their face. Is there anything you can leave with us about when you feel that flood of shame, whether you're alone by yourself in your room, whether you're talking to someone? So many of these individuals, you know, if they have to report it either to law enforcement or maybe they are reporting it to a higher authority within their athletic organization, what can they do when they feel that flood of shame coming over them?
1: We've talked about it a little bit today, but the first place to always start with shame is getting it right back out of your bucket. Mm. That's not my response. Get it out of your bucket. That's not my choice. Tri- and sometimes just saying, not my bucket. <laughs> yeah, <that's, laughs> like, I like that one.
0: Hand, not my bucket. I like that to one.
1: Try to psychologize it more. could be more complex, but just yeah. bottom line: not my bucket. Not my Something shame. You not my say. bucket.
0: That's it. That's what we're going to do. That's where we're going to leave this. This was, you have exceeded the goal here on the podcast. You've inspired us. You've given us some science you've given us a personalized story. And I know that you have tools that we're going to talk about we'll link in our show notes. But can you tell these listeners how to reach out to you, they can learn more about you and any projects you have coming up or events?
1: Okay, wonderful. So first place to start is rachelgrantcoaching.com. If you'd like to get more clarity about which stage of healing you're in, go all the way to the bottom and get the three stages of recovery checklist, because that's going to help you kind of figure out where you are. And while it's, you know, again, laid out in this nice linear way, what's really true is we can be in one stage in one area and one stage in another. But this is just a great framework to help you kind of wrap your head around what this process can look like. If you want to explore enrolling in the Beyond Surviving program, you can complete an application for a Discover Your Genuine Self session and we'll meet together. That's complimentary. And if you're hearing this podcast before May 1st okay. of 2021, then pop over to the emergeretreat.com. This is yeah. a, a project that I'm doing. It's the second year that we're offering this, this time virtual because of COVID, but it's Emerge Unleash Your Empowered Self Retreat for Women. Yeah. And So come check that out. I'm doing that in partnership with my colleague, Ashley Easter. It's going to be a beautiful weekend of exploring neuroscience of trauma, intuition, embodiment. We're going to do a beautiful sound healing. So there's lots there to to eat up and partake of too.
0: (laughs) That sounds like a great, great event. I'm going to encourage, and we're going to get this out before May 1st. So, and everyone could, you know, take part in that. Rachel, thank you so much for everything you've talked about and everything you've done. I really, really appreciate it appreciate it.
1: All information and content in this podcast is provided for entertainment purposes only. Nothing in this podcast shall constitute legal advice and shall not create an attorney-client relationship. This information is general and may not be applicable to your particular circumstances. You should review your particular circumstances with an attorney. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast is hereby expressly disclaimed.